We welcome you back to The Bookcase. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I'm Kate Gibson. The father and daughter duo, two generations, two genders looking at novels. And this week, we're going to talk about Julia Glass. She came to prominence way back in 2002 when her first novel won the National Book Award. That was Three Junes. And this is her seventh novel. It is called Vigil Harbor. And I found it very timely, Kate. I found it very timely, too. I'm really impressed by some of the books that I'm reading that are incorporating. You know, you and I have talked about this before. It feels like writers right now can make a choice. They can choose to incorporate what's going on in the headlines, which is so prominent, you know, COVID and racial injustice and climate change. They can incorporate those headlines into their writing, or they can ignore them and create a world of fiction in which those things don't exist. Her new book, Vigil Harbor, very much incorporates today's headline. It takes place in 2034, but COVID is its diving off point. It's sort of starting point. It captured my feelings during the pandemic very, very well. It brought back a lot of old feelings for me. There's two things you have to keep in mind, I think, when you approach this novel. One of them you just mentioned, it is set 12 years from now, so that many of the problems that we face in current society have been exacerbated by the time that this novel comes about. COVID, you mentioned, which is her jumping off spot, terrorism, immigration problems, but particularly climate change and how that has evolved. And the second thing you have to keep in mind is the name of the novel, Vigil Harbor, her fictional town. It is sheltered. It is a New England town set up high on a bluff, so perhaps immune from climate change, even though it is set out over the water. It's a safe place. It's a haven. But that's why many of its residents who narrate this book have come to Vigil Harbor, even though they may feel that they have a safe place and a haven. The problems of the world begin to intrude in big time. They begin to intrude. I think it's both a really good read in terms of just being a a good story and yet very interesting in the way the problems of the world intrude, problems of the world exacerbated by 12 years' passage of time. Certainly. I think in some ways she's arguing that these last couple of years were a turning point for us. I think this novel presupposes maybe what happens if we don't change our ways or learn from the last few years. And I want to say one other thing about this book, because I'm starting to feel a little bit like I'm a cheap date for writers and publishers. I love books written from multiple perspectives. I love writers that are able to embody multiple voices within their book. I think it's a great way to show their range, both Three Junes and Vigil Harbor uh, from different perspectives, different chapters. I love that technique. I'm, I'm a sucker. Yeah, in this case, actually, as I was getting into it and I realized, I think she has nine different narrators, all of whom are citizens of Vigil Harbor. I began to realize I needed to keep notes. I don't know if that's unfair to Julia to say that, but I began to keep notes as to who was who and who their relationships were so that when I would get into a new chapter that was going to be narrated by a different voice than the previous chapter, I I knew what their relationships were. The other thing I would mention, which I loved about this novel, I didn't think I was going to, was there is a touch of the supernatural in it. There is a character that you never really quite know where she comes from or where she's going or what she's doing. It's just an interesting touch that I thought maybe was going to sour me on the novel and didn't. It actually intrigued me even more. 
So I hope we've whet your appetite for this one, because as I say, it's a good read and it has a very interesting social implications in terms of the problems of the world. Vigil Harbor is the name of the book. Julia Glass, the author. Good to have her back in print. Here's our conversation with Julia. Julia Glass, a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. I've read you for many years, many volumes, and it's nice to have you with a new book out. Vigil Harbor, the book, and Vigil Harbor itself is an essential character in the book, I think. Give me a thumbnail impression or a quick description of Vigil Harbor. So Vigil Harbor is a coastal New England town on a peninsula of granite headland, and it it has a rich, long history going back to its founding as a cod fishing village in the 17th century, was pivotal in the American Revolution, a strong, a patriot stronghold of insurgency against the crown. And in the 21st century, it is an affluent, fairly privileged town of people who certainly don't have to worry about roofs over their head, who are mostly politically liberal, and who at the moment in time when this book takes place, which is 12 years from now, are somewhat but not entirely immune to a lot of the forces of climate change, political division, the slings and arrows that we're facing now, but that are a bit more acute by then. It seems to me that you feel that nothing can be totally insular or remote these days. No. I mean, I think that some of us are sitting pretty for the moment. And one of the things that I thought about a lot while writing this book is where we live geographically and topographically will influence how vulnerable we are to the forces of climate change. Not we won't be protected forever, but living in New England and my town, Marblehead, is very much the model for Vigil Harbor. We don't have a problem with water supply. You know, we, we are slammed by coastal storms, but not by hurricanes. We are not a place where wildfires take place, where so far tsunamis hit. It's So in a way, you know, geography is destiny more than it maybe has seemed to be in the past. I mean, that's an adage, right? Geography is destiny. It seems to me that a lot of the snowballing that happens in the world you create in Vigil Harbor really kicks off with COVID. And you did such a, I want to quote you back to you, which is, probably annoying for you, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then like everyone else, I watched the world shut down around me, lost jobs, lost dreams, lost lives, lost gravity, by which I mean all assumed connections to the ground beneath our feet. And that was very much how I felt when 2020 kicked off. I felt very weightless. And so I'm wondering, as that crisis kicked off and we were in the throes of it, when did you decide this is going to be my kicking off point for this book? Kate, that's a really good question because as a matter of fact, I had basically finished a draft. I mean, a very polished draft of this book. In fact, at a lovely writer's residency of 14 women writers in an inn by the side of a lake in February of 2020, because there was no COVID in this book, which takes place (laughs) close enough in the future that you can't, you know, that it's very close in the rearview mirror of this. I mean, if you do the math, the year this takes place is 2034. So what was I going to do? But it was tough. And I was worried that COVID would seem, you know, wedged and pasted into the book. But when my editor read the finished draft, she said, you know, what happened here is that COVID gave you a scaffolding for this Mm. that you didn't even have before. So (laughs) in no way is COVID a blessing, but it added a kind of texture to the slight 
slightly futurist quality of the story that I was telling. This is the weird thing about this book. I'm a serial monogamist as a fiction writer. I write one book and I am faithful to it until publication do us part and then I start the next one. But what happened is I started this book close to 10 years ago. And at that time, it was about an architect who lives by the sea and builds houses to withstand storms. And he has this secret past marriage to a woman who might or might not have been a sea creature of some kind. I mean, might okay, yeah, go ahead and laugh because no. my, readers of my past books would assume that some heavy object fell on my head. <laughs> I don't do that. Magical realism and fantasy are above my pay grade. I admire greatly many literary writers who are in that territory. But that's what I was thinking about. And I was creating this world around this architect and this secret past marriage he had. And I kind of got stuck. On June 1st of 2017, I had to look this up, but I remember this moment clearly. I pulled into the parking lot of my local garden center and I was going to buy a tree for my little yard. And what is on NPR as I pull into the driveway, but our, <laughs> the new president we have since I had abandoned that first novel is about to give an address. And I stay in the car because I have a feeling, I, I mean, actually, we all know what it's going to be. He pulls the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord. And I sat in my car and I cried for 10 minutes. I have children and I thought, what is going to happen to this world? So I began to have this thought living in this coastal town that's very green-minded. We're trying to be carbon neutral by 2040 and doing all the right things on a very local level. And I thought, what must it feel like right now to be a climate scientist or a climate activist in a moment when things are going backwards? They aren't even in stasis. And I thought, what if to these people dedicated to saving our species, I mean, the planet's going to be fine, but saving us, what if they decide that the only way to really be heard is to resort to violence? What if terrorism becomes a weapon of people with very worthy and humane goals? I mean, a couple of questions that come up again and again in, my, in the stories that I write are, what happens when people who are smart and good-hearted make really foolish choices? And how do they deal with the consequences? And another question that I'm always asking is, how do we go on after heartbreak that is never going to be fully healed? Being widowed, being abandoned, being betrayed. I mean, Charlie, you were one of my most public first, first readers of three genes that came out 20 years ago. And <laughs> just three. Just three. That's a lot of gems. That's a good gems. They multiply. The time of inflation and those gems have inflated. So no, 20 years ago, three gems. So that novel grew out of a time in my life when I went through divorce, a cancer diagnosis, and the loss of my only sibling to suicide in a period of a year. Now, that novel is not you know, plot-wise, it's not about those things, but metaphorically it is. It's about how in the world do we find that resiliency? And so I am once again in Visual Harbor writing about people who as individuals, as families, as a community are dealing with hardships as well as celebrations. I mean, this is a town with a great deal of patriotic pride. It's a very scenic town. It's the kind of place people 
return to, to raise their own children after they're raised there. But each of my characters has a rich past that the reader will come to know fully. You know, it is only to the extent that my characters intersect with the forces of the larger world that I write politically. I never set out to write a political novel. You talked about eight narrators that you have. We've had an interesting conversation, Kate and I, with Sue Miller, talking about the limitations of writing in the first person and how you can only see things through one prism. And yet, if you write in the third person, you are much more free to delve inside the minds of all of your characters. You get around that in a very interesting way, I think, by writing in the first person with eight different characters, as you point out. And I'd like to point out also, before you answer that question, because I'd love for you to answer it in, in the guise of two lenses, because this is not the first, in Three Junes, the third person also exists with the first person. So I wonder if you could talk about your philosophy of playing with those perspectives in all of your work. Dime store omniscience. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, you mentioned Sue Mueller. She is such a heroine of mine, and she is a master craftswoman. And I just, can I just tell a tiny Sue Miller story? Please. Sure. For 20, 20 summers, one of the brilliant things my publisher did was sometimes they, because I was just a little, you know, first novel person, and this was before I won an award for the book, they would sort of hitch me to a star, like put me with a big writer who was on tour. So I got to be with the opening band to Richard Russo. And then, so to Sue Miller at a library event. And so at the end, when people were asking questions, someone said, well, I was wondering if the two of you have that experience I've heard about where you're writing about a character and they just seem to be living their life and you're not creating it. You're just following that character. Do you guys have that experience? Sue said, well, Julia, why don't you answer that question first? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, in Three Junes, the character Fenno McLeod, I never thought he'd be the protagonist. There I was chasing him down the streets of the West Village. And it was just incredible living his own life. And Sue Miller then sort of, she's, she's so poised. And she said, I regard all my characters as my employees. They do what <laughs> I want them to do. Stories of getting to, you know, be on the road with other authors. But to, to answer your question, I will freely mix points of view in a novel. And my feeling about the first person is when you're a reader reading a first person narrative, you're standing face to face with that character. When you're encountering a character through third person, and I'm thinking of third person close, as we call it. In other words, I'm writing from inside Charlie's mind as he moves around the room, but I'm writing about him in the third person. That's like looking at the character in profile. And omniscience, which is a point of view not often used these days. I start with one character. It's not uncommon for characters that I didn't think were very important to upstage others because Austin Kepner, the architect who definitely has a voice and a presence in Vigil Harbor was supposed to be my alpha protagonist. It's not that he's unimportant, but he's fairly monochromatic compared to other characters mm -hmm. who kind of overtook him while I was writing that book. I mean, Margot is a case in point. She's just, I fell in love with her and mm -hmm. loved occupying her voice. And Brecht, too. That's interesting that as you write, you will get intrigued with the character mm -hmm. and therefore expand their role within your book. Yes. It's an interesting concept. I tell my students, my writing students, that when you embark upon writing a novel, unless you're Joyce Carol Oates, you better enjoy living with these characters for a couple of years, right? 
And, and just as in real life, when you get to know people, you know, some people who you sort of dismissed grow to value more and some whom you initially admired, had a crush on, you realize are far more flawed than you thought they were. So living with your own characters, I feel is very much like meeting and getting to know real people, which might be slightly pathological, but you know, that's the way my mind works. At one point, as I was reading Vigil Harbor first, I turned to Katie and, and said, this book may have turned weird. There has been a fantastical or a, uh, a mythical element that has been introduced in it. And I'm not sure exactly how it fits. One character is very much unlike the others in the book. And I wasn't exactly sure why you did that. The character is a young woman named Issa. Uh, what were you doing with Issa and why? I don't want you to I don't want you to give it any way, but so Issa is the young woman with whom Austin the architect had a very intense and impulsive and passionate relationship when he was much younger than when you meet him in this novel, when he's remarried. Issa is someone who believes or claims to have superhuman I don't know if that's the correct term, origins, that she, in fact, comes from the sea. And there are some very weird things about her. But I don't want to be coy about this. But although I'm not, I do not delve in the paranormal. I've never seen a ghost. I'm about as telepathic as a turnip. It's really up to the reader to decide about Isa. And my editor actually believes that Isa comes from a supernatural element. And I'm not going to say, I think each reader has to judge it on their own. You know, one curious detail about her, she doesn't have a navel. And a few years ago, well, actually 15 years ago, I was at an institute and I was talking to another, a guy who's a professor of entomology, actually. And he was saying that one of the weirdest trends that he saw among his student body is that some of his female students not male students, but some of his female students were having their navels surgically closed and erased so that they had no navel. And it was very, he said, and when the weather is warm and they wear these sort of short tops, he said, it's really disturbing. So I collect little details that people tell me, and I just had to use that. And, and so that's one of the things about Lisa, but it doesn't mean that she isn't a human being. I don't know, Charlie, did I just dig my own grave? A close friend of mine is reading this book now, and she's almost done. And I will tell you, she just wrote me an email and said that Issa is her favorite character. So go figure. You know, it, One of the things I love about writing so many characters who are so important is hearing which characters which people like. When you talked about the fact that she didn't have a navel, and then somebody does say, in fact, that's what the kids are doing these days. I had this mental reaction where I thought to myself, I wonder if that is something kids are doing well, these I, days. I actually teach 20-somethings, and I never know what's going to walk into the classroom. Yeah, exactly. I really enchanted hair that's been sort of dyed teal or turquoise or fuchsia. And I said to one student, of course, I thought, you know, am I allowed to say this? I said, I love that new shade of blue that you have dyed your hair. And I said, sometimes I wish I could do it. She said, well, why couldn't you do it? And I said, I'm too old to do that. And she said, that's a ridiculous thing to say. I said, well, it would really embarrass my children. And she said, well, that's definitely a reason to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Julia Glass, it's a pleasure. I wish you the best. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. 
Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Julia Glass, The Rapid Fire Questions. What's the most influential book in your life? Daniel Deronda by George Eliot. Why? Because it's the first book novel that I read that made me understand the power of fiction to create extraordinary empathy for a character about whom you start a story not caring one bit. And it's very much a story about human folly and forgiveness. It's the book that made me realize I wanted to write fiction more than I wanted to paint. I've been a painter through my 20s, and it just turned a key inside me. Book or e-reader or audio? By e-reader, do you mean downloaded? Neither. I read books as books. Books as books. Do you read your reviews? I do. Anybody who tells you they don't is lying. (laughs) Is there a revered book? that you read, that you're sorry you read, that you just didn't like? Oh, um, okay. Although I read it a long time ago, I just really don't get it. Um, What's it called? It's Conrad's most famous book, the one that Apocalypse Now is based on. Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness. That's a man's book. I mean that in the worst possible way. I don't get that book at all. If you're reading a book and you don't like it, do you finish it anyway or do you put it down? I would always finish it before I had children, since having children, life is too short, and I give a book 50 pages, and if I'm not into it, I'm done. What was your favorite book to read to your kids? Oh, my favorite book to read to my kids, who aren't kids anymore, was a book called Roar and More by Carla Cuskin, which was the very 
first book I ever endeavored to own. I heard Captain Kangaroo read it when I was about five years old and asked my parents to get it for me, and they did. And I cherished that copy my whole life and got to read it to my children. It's actually quoted in my second novel, The Whole World Over. I got to exchange letters with Carla Cuskin, who was quite elderly by, by then, but still alive. So I still have my copy of Aurora and Moore. We stole this question from Stephen Colbert because we like it so much. In five words, describe what you want the rest of your life to be. Five words? Um, uh, connected, optimistic, motherly, wise, and clear-headed. Our conversation with Julia Glass, a fascinating writer, and I I really liked this book. As I say, I loved the multiple perspectives. I also, the last three or four years have been mentally challenging for anybody. There's been a lot to absorb in this country. Well, in this world, there's been a lot of real life current events that have banged on our doors, knocked down our doors in many cases, irrevocably in some cases. And I feel like this book was, as a reader, a helpful way for me to process some of those events. She captures the way that I like, so she's got this one uh, line, time plays like an accordion in the way it can stretch out and compress itself in a thousand melodic ways. Months on end may pass blindingly in a quick series of chords open shut together apart. And then a single melancholy week may seem like a year's pining one long unfolding note. That was exactly how I felt sitting in this house, homeschooling my kids spraying vinegar on my groceries, trying to figure out how this pandemic was passed from person to person. Time felt very strange. It felt very like melting plastic. And she captured my sense of unreality. Yes, the book is written in the future, but she very much captured my feeling of unreality of the last four years. Well, and as you pointed out, COVID was the jumping off point. But the big trend or danger, I guess, to the world is climate change. And that that is what now has invaded. She talks about how, what COVID did, but then climate change invades the haven of Vigil Harbor. And her interesting premise, which she mentioned in the interview, is that people who are alarmed by climate change and who cannot fathom why societally we're not doing something about it, turn to terrorism, turn to eco-terrorism. And it's an interesting kind of terrorism with which she has a little bit of sympathy because climate change becomes an existential threat to a town like Vigil Harbor. Now, to your eco-warriors out there, we're not trying to give you any ideas, but we are trying to say we're incredibly sympathetic because you're right, the world will not listen. And I think um, certainly current events have indicated that the world is, is not listening. And I think this book is a long and beautiful way of saying sort of wherever you go, there you are. doesn't matter where you are these days. The Hamptons, the Bahamas, Turks and Caicos. There are hurricanes, there are tornadoes, there's Ida, there's Katrina. You can't escape the reality of what's going on in our environment anymore. Although certainly a lot of people are trying. And this book, I think, is a beautiful exploration of that. And as we speak about it, half the country, more than half the country, is simply baking under 100 and 
plus degree temperatures. We're cooking the world in effect. And as this book points out, we're not doing much about it. Anyway, Julia Glass, the book Vigil Harbor, we recommend it. We hope you're intrigued by it, which brings us to a local bookstore. We like to affiliate with a local independent bookstore somewhere around the country with each podcast. And this week it's Kepler's, Kepler's, K-E-P-L-E-R-S in Menlo Park, California. Two friends of mine, John and Susie Diekman, are big customers of the store and said, you've got to include Kepler's. And we have found out since it is something of a staple in the area around Stanford University, Menlo Park, etc. So Brittany Kane from Kepler's Bookstore in Menlo Park. Brittany Kane, good to have you in the bookcase. I think people have an image of bookstores, particularly independent bookstores as places in the community that sort of hang out a shingle and said, come on in and if you want to buy a book. But we have found talking to independent bookstores that more and more they are having to reach out to sell themselves to the community and in so doing establish a very loyal customer base. How does Kepler's do that? Yeah, interesting question. I have a bookseller who often refers to us, to the store, as what is colloquially known as the third place. Um, So you have home and you have work and then you have that place that you love to go. And she also describes it. it, She really hits it on the nose. Kepler's is like a park and it's a place that you get to love to come to be. And yet you're spot on. How do we drive that revenue? How do we keep it not just as a public service, but as a store that is selling goods? And I think Praveen calls Kepler's the store that wouldn't die. We've been brought back by the community twice. We've been running since 1955. He took ownership of the store in 2012 and has done just tremendous work in continuing to make us a community pillar. And so we really are driven by community support. How would you describe yourself as a reader when a customer comes in and what section is the first section you take them to and why? So it depends, I think, if that We get all kinds of people who come in looking for recommendations, right? And I do a lot of this when I do my hiring, because I sort of make them do their role playing and describe that person who comes in and they haven't read a book in months and they don't know what they're looking for and they just need some handholding. And then you get that person who's on the other end of the spectrum who knows what they're looking for, but doesn't want to tell you that off the bat. And what's really wonderful, I think, about our team is that we cover the whole store in our reading and we all have our niches, but we all know each other's niches. And so for the person who's lost, I often bring them to our staff favorite shelf and I describe it as sort of our wall of adjectives. I love memoirs. I love family-centric books. So I read a lot of fiction. I loved, I don't know if you've read Geraldine Brooks' new book yet, Horse. Yep. Yep. But it's just terrific. So we, I'm sure you've heard that booksellers get advanced copies. And so we often have to sit on these things before they come out. And so I read Horse months ago and have just been waiting. And so I day couldn't come fast enough for me to put it into people's hands. You are in Menlo Park. We are in Menlo which, Park. Which if people don't know it, is a very it's a very upscale part of California, north of San Francisco. It is also very near Stanford in Palo Alto. Do you have a very upscale group of readers? Are they different than you would have found in your old job in San Francisco? And what kinds of things do they favor? This is a bookstore for anyone and everyone who would like to come through the doors. And truly, I'm not doing my job right if you don't feel that you can find a book here or I can't find something for you. 
I think that's the beauty of it is that you can read up, you can read down, you can take a break. I just, the book I just started is actually for middle grade readers. And it's just a delight. It's such a high period for middle grade fiction right now. But we do pull in quite a bit of the Stanford crowd, which is interesting because Stanford has its own multi-level bookstore. But I think there's a difference in just a feel. Um, You know, if you think about the environment and how place creates experience, what do you get when you walk into your neighborhood bookstore as opposed to the bookstore on campus? And again, it's not that one is better or worse, but simply different. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the sort of intense story about Jane Stanford, who was the wife of the Stanford founder. She was murdered. And it's been like long-standing gossip in that nobody knows who is behind it. And so a Stanford professor actually just put out a Who Killed Jane Stanford book, which is the hottest, newest take on what happened and who poisoned her in Hawaii. And that has been flying off of our shelves. And I think it's just a really a great example of kind of what that proximity to Stanford and what that local feel looks like is that you don't have to be there to be a part of what the there means. We really cannot get enough copies of Who Killed Jane Stanford in the store. All right, Brittany Kane, thank you very much. From Kepler's Bookstore in Menlo Park, you can find them on El Camino Real, a very California-named street. And we are delighted that you joined us in the bookcase. Thank you ever so much. Thank you so much for having me. Brittany Kane of Kepler's Books. I always love a bookstore that prizes its customers so highly that they put somebody in charge of a customer's experience in the bookstore. That's something that I just love the idea of. (laughs) Absolutely. I want to put in a small advertisement here for us. We have now been at this now for three months, and we uh, appreciate all of you who listen to this, and we urge you to follow this, to subscribe to it. We're finding actually that a lot of people who listen to this podcast have already subscribed and we appreciate that. So what we want you to do is go out, corral your friends, hire a skywriter, do something that will get more people to subscribe. Uh, that's uh, That's what keeps us going. And at risk of advertising ourselves or blowing our own horn, Uh, We appreciate it if you get on uh, wherever it is you get your podcast and you subscribe and listen to us weekly. As you can tell, we're totally comfortable plugging ourselves, but we really, really, really want to. Call your neighbors. uh, Go out with one of those signs that you twirl around about the bookcase with Kate and Charlie. Whatever. Anyway, there are some people who make this podcast what it is, other than the two of us. And uh, we always like to mention their names. And then stay tuned to Julia Glass will take us off the air. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Eru Ekpenobi, and Elizabeth Russo. Buy lots of books and buy them at independent bookstores. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? 
In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.